Good morning. I find this Palm, this is Palm Sunday. I find these passages uh, very interesting. Um, and I all week um, have been just captivated by uh, this section of scripture um, and this story, what is happening on Palm Sunday um, for a lot of reasons. Um, one is because there's a whole lot going on. It's cute. Uh, we have a lot of attachments to what it was like in Sunday school to, you know, wave these palm branches and stuff like that. Uh, you have just pure chaos happening in the narrative. Um, you have, I mean, just really remarkable things that we'll get into that are happening all at the same time. And it can be difficult to parse out all the ins and outs of what is happening in the story. And I say that to acknowledge that I think this is one of the things that makes narratives really special and powerful for us. Um, we are coming to this passage, and this is the height of drama um, in Jesus' ministry. He is at his popularity with the crowd is at an all-time high right now. Um, his unpopularity with the powers that be is at an all-time high right now. And we are entering into this story where Jerusalem, it is just on the verge of combustion, that the smallest little thing is going to set, set it off, and we're going to end up in pure chaos. Um, but this, it is, even just being a narrative, I think this is, it is intriguing because it touches so many different parts of our lives in some ways that are difficult to even control and put into words. Um, so I'm going to put this before you. I'm going to give a little bit of, um, just some context to the passage, but I think I'm saying this in a little bit of admitting that this is a passage I am still wrestling with and I'm still searching my own heart uh, to find out how, really what this means and how this applies. And my biggest prayer for us this morning is that we would be able to do the same, uh, that we could receive it with a posture of openness and curiosity, and that we would go out of here uh, with that wrestling still happening, uh, rather than it being tied up in a neat bow um, here today. So the only things I want you to know before we come in here is that Lazarus has just been raised from the dead. Um, and this is the thing that has set everything into motion that is about to happen. Um, the, the crowd is waiting for Jesus in Jerusalem. Um, they are asking whether, you know, all they're talking to each other, like, is he going to show up here for um, this festival? The Pharisees are looking for him. They're trying to kill him. Um, and Jesus has been up until this point hiding from them. And everybody is on pins and needles and then we come to this event, uh, which we know affectionately as um, Palm Sunday. So let me read this. This will be from the account of John, chapter 12, uh, verses 12 through 19. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. And so the Pharisees said to one, one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. 
Dear Father, would you be with all of us as we sit under your word this morning? Uh, Would you open up our hearts in a way that I am certainly powerless to do even for uh, my own heart? Um, So we are looking to you uh, to receive your word, to receive your grace, um, and trusting that you will work through it uh, as you have promised to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we just got back this week from camping uh, with the kids. We went out for three nights, which is the longest we had ever done before, and it was a stretch for us, to say the least. Um, and I was trying to explain uh, this week why we do this thing called camping, because it essentially is manufacturing suffering of a kind um, to go through, and but it's manageable suffering. It's like you're, we're trying to reduce life down to its most basic forms, in a way that we can kind of handle and pat ourselves on the back that maybe if the apocalypse happens, then we won't be the first crew to go. You know, maybe something like that. Uh, But it's beautiful and it's fun. But I found that it is so much work. There's so much that has to be done all the time. I had illusions of sitting and reading, and it ends up being just collecting firewood and lighting fires and whatever, which takes like two hours, you know, all, all way longer than you expect. Uh, but I found myself as I was thinking through uh, this stuff, like what are we doing, what needs to be done, what need we need to survive, that I also found myself thinking about the kids. Like I'm spending all of this work uh, to provide for them so that they have enough to eat. Um, but that kind of led me to thinking of um, what do they need? Like what do they need to be able to possess the same skills and what are the principles that I really want to impress upon them that they're going to need in the future um, in order for them to be able to um, survive and thrive and those kinds of things. And there's just a unique time where these lessons tend to come out like it is very important to do your work first and then enjoy the fruits later. Because if you don't, then we are not going to have enough firewood and not going to have a fire and then we are not going to have those. And so it kind of brought these things to the surface and I found myself kind of burden for my kids in a unique way is are they going to have what they need um, as they grow up um, and they go forth. Um, And the one time I did have a chance to read, I was reading Wendell Berry, of course, um, but there's a short story that he just summed this up really well. Uh, It's a story about a young kid and his uh, farmhand. Um, And he says, as he needed to, Dick instructed Andy in how to work, how to stay out of the way of somebody who was working, how to be careful but sometimes he would turn the conversation to less welcome instruction. And this would have to do with growing up, becoming responsible, and taking the right kind of care of things. Dick, it seemed, had looked ahead and seen, as the boy Andy did not wish to see, Andy Catlett as a grown-up man with obligations and responsibilities. And perhaps Dick, in his good heart, felt for the boy the burden that coming time and the burden of the boy's unreadiness and he assumed the duty of trying to warn him and somehow prepare him for this. I felt like that summed up the most of how I felt towards my kids. And I say that to put this passage in front of us because um, there are a couple things going on here. And I'm going to talk about this in terms of two kinds of grace, which I've, I've never heard these terms. I feel like someone else might have say, said them, so I'm, I might not be making this up. Maybe I am. But it's going to illustrate both passive and active grace on Jesus' part. Passive grace, it doesn't mean a weak grace, or it doesn't mean a disinterested grace or anything like that, but more a grace that is given purely as a gift. 
um, that the characters in this story did absolutely nothing for. They were provided for, like a father who knew what the people need, even though the children had no idea um, the things that it took to provide for them. But that's not all he did. What we see here is Jesus, who is actually in an active way, he's demonstrating what I'm thinking of as active grace. This is the kind of grace that's based on that, where he starts actively poking around in people's lives, like in the present, where he is taking the favor he has for them and he is channeling it into them to help them to see, to help them to understand, to open up their hearts, to open up their minds so that something dynamic is happening inside of them. They're growing and they're changing and they're becoming something new. That's what I'm thinking of as act of grace. And both of these, I think, are so apparent in this passage that it is a wonderful story of Jesus's provision for his people. And it is also a picture of Jesus being willing to go into the hearts of his people and to bring up things that they might not want to see on their own. That it is, he is dedicated in an active, everyday way to actually change the hearts of his people. Um, those two things, active and passive grace. And he is doing this into a context of people who have a wealth of needs, who have a wealth of complications, uh, who have a wealth of wounds and burdens and all of these things, and who have no idea what they are dealing with. But we, I think we have a picture here of a kind father who is willing to enter in and he is willing to work. And he, he feels that burden for his people. And he is willing to take action on their behalf. Um, it is action of grace. So I'm going to break this down and what, in just in terms of what Jesus is doing. Um, we'll have three points here. I think he's unearthing our buried commitments. I think he's demonstrating God's heavenly commitments, and then he's forging new commitments in the lives of his people. All of these very actively and in an everyday sense. Uh, but let's look at this. He's unearthing our buried commitments. And this is seen in, this, in the irony of this story, and that this story is the one that we see as, you know, it's a cute children's story, and it's a wonderful moment of joy and praise, and everyone is excited that the king has come here. But if we read a little bit further in the story, what do we find out? That it is paragraphs before this whole crowd who is excited to the point of being ecstatic in one moment to where they turn into a murderous mob who is willing to put this guy to death in the very next minute. And that Jesus is actually, he is showing what is in the hearts of people and what people are capable of. And he's actually, in his calm and steady and unchanging way, I think he is actually drawing these things out of his people so that they are noticed. So it becomes clear what is actually deep in the hearts of these people. And there's a few ways we see this. We would have to read. You're welcome to open up your Bibles and look. But, you know, if we went back early, you know, through at the end of chapter 11 after Lazarus is dead, um, then the Pharisees... They say this very interesting thing. So Lazarus is risen from the dead, and then they get concerned that everybody now is going to go believe in Jesus. And they said, well, we can't have that, uh, because then that the authorities are going to come and they are going to take away our land and our nation. And so we see two deep needs, um, that these, which are not bad things, they're good things that these people feel. That their home, their land, and their nation, their political group identity is going to be taken away from them if they go and believe in this guy. 
And that hit me really deeply this week because think about what the land meant to Israel. The land was what they wandered through the desert for, for years and years and years. And the land, it represented so many other things. It represented God's uh, provision for them. You could just imagine them walking through the desert and imagining this is going to be the place where we will be free and we will get to make our own way in the world. We'll get to plant our own gardens and live off of the sweat of our brow. These hills are going to be the hills that my grandchildren are going to grow up and look at, the same ones that I do, and life is going to be great. There are all these things attached to this hope that are very near and dear, and these are the same things that we have also. All of the same hopes and dreams. And then somehow we got from that, which is very understandable, to this almost comical situation where the Pharisees, they see that Lazarus has risen from the dead, and they acknowledge that Jesus rose this, this guy from the dead. Like, they don't think it's a joke. And they, what do they do? They actually try to kill Lazarus again. They're like, I mean, how do you get to that point to where you're like, this guy has come out of the grave and my best hope is to kill him a second time and put him back in so that I won't lose the thing that I feel most um, precious to me. It just seems crazy, right? But it's the same with the crowd. This crowd is there because they witnessed Jesus do something remarkable. They witnessed him raise a guy from the dead, something that is just impossible to happen. And they're doing this on the backs of all of these promises that God has given to his people about he is, how he is going to take care of them. And they say, finally, that the things that I have been wanting and longing for are about to be delivered. And it is in these places of wanting and longing and need that, which again, are very, very understandable, that something happened in the human heart. That Jesus... He did not go after them directly. He continued to proclaim who he was. He continued to fulfill his mission. Uh, This sparked and this drew out the ire of the people. And then eventually it was disappointing. And it was in that disappointment that the heart that had latched onto these hopes became a heart that ended up expressing violence upon the very thing that they had hoped for in the first place. And why is this important? Jesus wanted these people to understand that there are things in life that they had, that we all have, that we really need and that are very, very important to us and they are very, very good things. This is part of the human condition of being dependent and fragile people. We are very needy people in our finiteness. But there is a tendency of the human heart to take something that is needed and that is good and that is longed for and to twist it and to become something that we become dogmatic about, that we insist upon, that we become absolutely committed to. That if we don't have this in this way, all of a sudden this is not working for me any longer. And we, if you're like me, I don't think we can see ourselves like doing what the Pharisees did or these people did because it just seems so crazy. But we do all know deep down what it is like to have these same impulses. Uh, We were sitting around the campfire and Lauren mentioned to me that I just feel like our whole life is defined by what we want and what we don't have. 
Like that is a thing that drives us to do almost everything that we do. It informs our self-consciousness about how we view ourselves. It informs where we overwork and where we do these things, you know, that we do every day, the frantic nature we get ourselves up into, uh, because we have to have these things. And it becomes this, this, you know, impulse of the heart to say that this is what I want, this is not what I have, and therefore, this what I have been doing is not working for me anymore. There has to be some other way. There has to be something else I can do uh, in order to get what I want and what I really need. Our wants are very powerful, and they drive us. There also, we know the impulse to want to be right, to be controlling of a narrative or to control other people. And that if we can't see ourselves as the one in the right, if we can't see ourselves as the the influential or the powerful or the important one in the story, um, then we can't accept that narrative of life. And we will defend ourselves again and again and again and again. Uh, We will sacrifice relationships because of our own commitment to us being right and us being the good guy. There are lots of impulses that we have and that we know that are there and that Jesus knows that they are there. But this story, it is an illustration that Jesus is actually actively drawing these things out. That for some reason in him, he thinks that this is important. This is important for them to see. Certainly it's a danger to not see them. Because he's showing there's a risk of being preoccupied with these these things so much that we actually miss what the kingdom of God is all about. And we miss the provision that we have actually been given um, by God. But... He also knows that those things are not the place where freedom is going to be found. There was nothing that happened in this story that actually delivered for these people the things that they had really hoped for. And Jesus knew that already. And when we look at our own lives, there are often things that come up that we don't like. There are stresses, there are disappointments, there are always, you know, those kinds of things that are frequent. Life is full of them. And they can feel random, and they can feel very, very helpless. But I think if we take a look at what, how Jesus operates and how he treats his people, that he is actually involved in those things too. Life is not random. That if he is the king, he is the one who's in control of all of these things that come into our lives, and he has an agenda for us in those. But what is that? And this is where I feel a sense of humility in front of this passage, because I don't know what that is. I can look at some things in my life, and I can see very strong commitments to certain things um, that really define me, and they dictate what I do. I don't know what that's like for you guys. Um, I do know that Jesus is always at work, and I do know that he is always stirring stuff up. But we have to see why Jesus is doing this. And this is actually, this is only one step in the process of a much, much bigger story. Because not only is he digging around and he is unearthing constantly these commitments that we have, he is also in those places demonstrating a kind of heavenly grace, a heavenly provision of which most of the time we are unaware that it is even there. So Jesus is coming, walking in on this donkey. And again, he's doing this on purpose. 
And that's been attested all through the Gospel of John. He's been saying that this life that I'm walking is going to end up in me being crucified. This was all on purpose. And so he knows the narrative that is going on in these people's minds, and he accepts this anyways. Like part of this is he is saying, okay, I will be the king in this moment who you want me to be, knowing where that is going to end up. It's going to lead him straight to the cross. But you know what the donkey symbolizes here? It symbolizes humility. If we look at this back in Zechariah 9, um, we see this very clearly um, in context. It symbolizes Jesus' humility, but this also was, as opposed to the symbol of a war horse of Jesus coming in to conquer his enemies and to put them down, it is a sign of a king coming in peace, as if the battle had already been won. And if we were to read on in Zechariah 9, he starts describing uh, this victory of the kingdom of God that spans as into every aspect of life, a vision of both when Christ would come and the new heavens and the new earth that would come. Jesus is coming to people he knew who had buried commitments that were too strong for them to deal with, and he came offering peace ahead of time. He offered them peace before they even knew they needed it. And I, I struggled to find an illustration for this. Uh, you know, this is the best I can do in some, in some ways, but I remember being a kid and we used to play, a friend was over, we used to play baseball a lot in the backyard and we had a small backyard, but we would use a tennis ball uh, because it was a lot safer. And I remember an afternoon where somebody brought a real baseball out there and we were kind of throwing it around and... Uh, but then one of my neighbors came over. Yeah, I was a little kid. Uh, she was a teenager and of the feminine persuasion. And so I looked at the picture and I said, throw me the real baseball. And I wound up <laughs> and I swung so hard that if you play baseball, you know what can happen is that you actually end up a little bit late on the pitch because you're trying to hit it so hard. And that thing, rather than going straight, went directly at the house through one of our glass windows. And I'd like drop the bat. I'm looking. She's standing right there, just looking at this whole thing. And I, there are two options going through my mind at that point. Like, there's no peace inside. So either I run, or I pretend to be real hard and like, yeah, I'm a rebel. I did that, and I don't care. Like, those are the only options, like either to run or to dig in. And I was very afraid of my mother in that moment, but you know what she did? (laughs) Before she said a word, she gave me one of the biggest hugs I've ever had. Like, I didn't ask for it. She just did it. And then what happened to my options at that point? I cried like a little baby. (laughs) I mean... It's like all of those fears, all that stuff that was stuck inside, it just came out. Why? Because my mother had offered me peace. She offered me peace before I was even looking for it. And that's, I think that's just a very small, imperfect picture of what Jesus is doing for these people right now. The fact that you have commitments in your life that you don't have the muscles to deal with and to get right... Jesus knows that. He knew that in the beginning. He knew that now. He knows that in the end. 
And when he is drawing these things out, he is not drawing them out so that he can point the finger and say, see, look at how far you have to go. Because Jesus wants to offer us peace. He wants us to bring us into this new kingdom. He wants to give us the kind of peace where we can be free to let it all out and to admit that we have no control over our lives if we really acknowledge that fact. But he does. And he will take care of it. And he will take care of us in the end. And this is, I think this is kind of leading us here into this last point about this act of grace of Jesus and what he is up to. Because if, if, you know, if we just stop at that point, this is, what I'm describing is the passive grace of Jesus. That he is accomplishing for his people what they couldn't do for themselves. Before they were asking for it, before they really knew it, what he was doing. Um, he is, he is actually, he, this, is, this is something that comes as a pure gift that we can't earn. But I want to fast forward to another crowd in the future um, and from Acts chapter 2, which we read. Um, and I do think this is really remarkable. Do you read what happened? Peter is preaching a sermon about the Holy Spirit, um, about what Jesus did. Um, the Holy Spirit's come down. Peter is explaining how all of these events have made sense, um, how Jesus came and he was crucified. And he points the finger at them. He says, this is the Jesus that you crucified. Remember this. So there's a lot of the same people in that first crowd and this last crowd. But he explained how all this was to fulfill what Jesus had meant to do in the first place and that he rose from the dead so that he could give eternal life and the full fruits of the kingdom of God to be bestowed upon his people as a gift. And then what happened? It said the Holy Spirit cut them to the heart and those same people were convicted And thousands of them turned and became members of the people of God. They ate bread together in each other's homes. They prayed with each other. They were dedicated to the word. They sang songs. They enjoyed a new kind of life. The very same people as before, many of which. And so even this part, there's something that Jesus is is powerful enough to do in them and in our everyday lives. And that in this struggle between these two, is that between the commitments that we have and what Jesus did for us, is that he actually has the power to work new commitments into our hearts based on those also. And if we don't acknowledge that point, we end up in this place where I see the commitments of my heart that I can't deal with, and I see what Jesus did, and I should... That should melt my heart enough to where I will now follow him and I'll turn away from those. But we know it doesn't always work like that. It is a long battle. It is a battle for our hearts every single day. But part of the good news of Jesus in this, what I'm calling act of grace, is that he is still there even in those places. That he is, and he is coming as the king, he is the king of even waging that battle. And so what he is offering to us going forward is a true walk of freedom, of enjoyment of him and his grace every step of the way. And I have two just very general application points of what this looks like. One, 
and just how do we know that we're actually walking in step with the Spirit, we're walking in step with the grace that Jesus is bestowing us every day. The first one, like these people in Acts 2, it involves acknowledging sin as sin. We can't get around that fact. There's a direct correlation in Scripture between being able to say, acknowledge sin as sin, but then actually being changed and be becoming more humble and generous people who are excited by and feel freed in, freed uh, and in love with the kingdom of God. There's a direct correlation between those two things in Scripture. There's also a correlation between the opposite of an unwillingness to acknowledge sin and sin and coming up with self-righteousness and division and those kinds of things instead. And that is a very important step, especially as we are here in Lent. This is what this season is for leading up to Easter. It is for self-examination, repentance, noticing what is going on in our hearts and being able to offer them up to Jesus in truth. But the other one is this, it is gratitude. Because every success, every step of the way, this is not something that we have done for ourselves. This has been the power of God's grace worked out in your life. So he is taking the burden of the future off of your shoulders and giving you this sense of gratitude and satisfaction of knowing that he is walking every step with you. He was there in the beginning and he will be there in the future. The battles will wage in the meantime, but he is the king of those two. And it is in that kind of gratitude of being thankful for his work where our hearts can actually be free. And I don't think there is a, especially for parents, and again, I know not everybody is in, in here as a parent, but this was weighing heavily on me this past week. Um, the burden for them and fearing for them of what they are going to do in the future and have I done everything right and are they going to go, you know, find out whatever. They're, you know, they're going to learn the things they learn and um, are they going to end up, you know, in a good place or not. Um, that Jesus has the power on those things too. Just as I have the power to look at my own life from a place of gratitude so that I also have the power to view other people's lives from a position of gratitude as well. The fear of the future is taken off and the joy of God's presence and his work in the past is given to me as a gift. So those are two things I want to leave you with here and just to think about. One... For this week and especially leading up to Easter 1 is this is an invitation to repentance. It is an invitation to go into those deep places and to ask, ask the Spirit this week that He would reveal. He is actively revealing you to Him all the time. And so this is a good request to ask of Him that He would do that. But also as you do that, ask Him for another kind of revelation. That is the revelation of His work in your life that you have much to be grateful for. You have much conviction of sin that you didn't have before. You have full reassurance of the grace of God um, that that even in our own sense of our own sin and knowledge of it, then that grows. All of those are opportunities of freedom. So that's what I want to ask us to do this week. Uh, Maybe in our community groups, you can do that together to ask yourself and ask each other, Where is the need for repentance and where is the need for gratitude? And then when we get to Easter next Sunday, then we we don't have to do those things. But we get to eat and we get to celebrate and we get to enjoy. Break bread together in each other's homes, enjoy the fruit of the kingdom, 
and walk forward in great joy. Let me stop there and I'll pray for us and then we will eat together. Dear Jesus, I thank you for uh, your work, your active work in our lives. And I ask of you these same things, that you would open up all of our hearts this week. Give us new and unique insight into our motives, into our commitments, into our hopes. And would you meet them with the kind of provision um, and act of grace that you promise us. Uh, We look forward in hope in light of that and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.